0: Implications. First one, it's Israel's constitution. Number two, I gave you the characteristics of law, and particularly Mosaic law, and you could summarize them in absolutes. Number three, what is the purpose of law? What can, what are some of the implications? What is the purpose of this revelation? That would be a good one. Yeah, that's a good summary. But there's other purposes. The purpose of the law, number one, it's a revelation of God's nature. What is God like? Revelation of God's nature. In fact, it would be good to read these verses. Loretta, you were in chapter 19. You still there? I'll have you read another verse. Linda, you still in 19 as well? You'll get there. Mark, why don't you look at Romans 3 and Deuteronomy 4.1. Randy, read 19, 16 through 19. Skip down to 17 and 18. 17, 18. And 19. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and a
1: stone stood, <laughs> stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was... All in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and his smoke seemed, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Okay,
0: God is revealing himself in a visible, audible, and a dramatic way. And this is in the context of giving of the law. The law is revealing in words a holy and uh, unapproachable God. Keep reading.
1: When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder.
0: So God is revealing through thunder. Keep reading, 19. The
1: Lord came down to Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people. Yeah, that's
0: fine. The main point is at Sinai, God revealed himself in a very visible way. We talked a bit about this in terms of the public display. So the Mosaic Law reveals the nature of God in written form. This is after God somewhat demonstrated his presence in these audible, visible, and very dramatic ways. Secondly, the purpose of the Mosaic Law is to reveal God's standards. Not only God's nature and God's character, but God's standards. Revelation of God's standards. You want to do Psalm 19? Once you get it, Randy, real quick. Psalm 19, 7-9. This kind of emphasizes a revelation of God's standards from the psalmist's perspective. Psalm 19, 7-9.
1: The law of the Lord is perfect and great to the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure and lightning like to The fear of the Lord is clean and forever. The judgment of the Lord are true and righteous all
0: together. Okay, do you catch the various descriptions of the law or synonyms for the law? Judgment, statutes, what were some of the other... Commandments, yeah. And what it's saying is these are God's standards. The, the law are God's standards. They're perfect. They're inerrant, basically, is the sum of all of that. And in the New Testament, we're told that the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. And that's the Romans 3.20. You have that one, Mark?
1: Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in sight.
0: Through the, the through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law reveals sin. And that's what Paul is getting at in Romans. While you're in Romans, read chapter 7 also. And 7 verse 7. This is Paul again. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would have it.
1: I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known
0: about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet." Okay, so the law reveals sin and particularly he's talking about coveting and coveting is what? Which of the Ten Commandments? The last one. The last commandment. So the law reveals sin. Paul says I would not know about coveting except it reveals my heart because that's a heart. Response. So the purpose of the law is not only to reveal God's nature, it also is to reveal God's standards, and it also is to reveal man's sin. So it reveals God and it reveals man. And it reveals how
1: to have a
0: relationship with God. And Randy, do you have that Deuteronomy four one?
1: How therefore hearken all this we all unto the statutes and unto the judgments, which I teach you.
0: Okay. Doing, obeying the statutes, the law, God is going to provide blessing in the land. And their relationship to God is dependent on the law and that obedient relationship. So fourth purpose is it will regulate what pleases God and what displeases God. And that's just one example in Deuteronomy. And lastly, it's going to be the means by which God rules over his nation. It's going to regulate rulership, the outworking of the dominion mandate. God will use the law to regulate his people. Five purposes of the Mosaic Law. Just a little cartoon here. Neither of these tablets comes with apps. You're supposed to laugh at that point. (laughs) Number four, another implication, fourth fourth implication. God, from here on out, is going to deal with the nation of Israel according to the Mosaic law, according to this contract. And you can look historically and see how God dealt with the nation of Israel from there on out, based on Israel's either obedience or disobedience to the Mosaic Law. So in uh, my little outline of the Old Testament here, we have the exodus, bondage, and birth. We saw the preparation and deliverance, first four chapters. We saw the defeat of Egypt, chapters 5 through 18, ending in the exodus. And we've just completed looking at 19 through 31, even though we didn't look at all of the verses, we just mainly looked at 19 and 20. That's the revelation at Sinai. That's the essential part of the law in the book of Exodus. And then 32 through 40 is mainly the response to the Mosaic Law. And let's look at a passage relating to that response to the law. Loretta, you want to look at Exodus 32 and read the first two verses... You want to look up also 30, look up 34. And Mark, look up chapter 40. These are all in the it. 32, 1 and 2. Now when the people saw that Moses
1: delayed to come down from the mountain, people assembled with Mount Aaron and said to him, Come, it is a God who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know
0: what has become of him. Okay. What is their response after the giving of the law, and almost in the middle of the giving of the law, because more of it will be specified after chapter 32. What's going on in chapter 32? We see the nature of the people, and it shows a rebellious people. Read to be more complete as to what's going on here. Read verses 7 through 9. Same chapter, Loretta.
1: Then the Lord spoke to Moses Go down, go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a Bolted calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed it and
0: said this is your God, O Israel, who brought us out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so on the very occasion of the giving of the law, reveals the sinfulness of man's heart, and particularly the the people of Israel at this point. What do they do? They make an idol. The very violation of the very first words that God speaks in the giving of the law. You shall have no other gods, and you shall not make idols. So even though God delivered them from Egypt, what did they do? They took Egypt along with them, and they're expressing basically their worldview. So they're not transformed yet. There are people that are delivered, but not transformed. They're not sanctified yet. God's going to have to deal with them. So basically the first response of the law is they break the covenant immediately, and that's illustrated in chapters 32 and 33. So a first response of violating the covenant, they break the covenant right off the bat. This is what they were raised in. This is why God is breaking them away and introducing a new way of living. Now, secondly, the covenant must be renewed. In fact, if you read this portion, it angers God, and God basically indicates to Moses that he could, in fact, bring judgment. He says he's going to. Moses pleads and says no. He makes a case, and, and God, I think, all along was not going to do what he indicated that he might do. So in chapter 34, we have a renewal of the covenant, and you got that one, Linda, 34, read verse
1: 1. 34. Now, the Lord, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be ready by morning you come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me in the top of the
0: mountain. Okay, so if you read 32 to 33... Moses basically shatters the tablets where God had written the covenant indicating in a visible physical way that Israel had violated or broken the covenant and in a physical way Moses breaks those tablets. And in verse 1 there that Linda just read, God is going to renew this covenant and tells him to cut out new stones. Now skip Linda and read verses 10 and 11.
1: Then God says, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform miracles, which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord. For it is a fearful thing that
0: I am going to perform with you. Okay. But notice a renewing of covenant there. Do you see a word covenant in that passage? Verse 10. So the covenant is renewed, and God is going to move on with them. The last part of the book of Exodus deals with the building of a tabernacle, and all the detail is specified, because it's at the tabernacle is where they will basically focus their worship before God. So the rest of the book of Exodus, from chapter 35 to 40, deals with the building of the tabernacle. So that's the book of Exodus.
1: Those are
0: Yeah, these are archaeological artifacts that were found in Egypt. So this is what the children of Israel would have been familiar with. And all the pharaohs would be identified with these gods. This would be a god, one of the gods of the Israelites. And here's a pharaoh before us. And similarly, you have a Pharaoh here before this God. So that calf, the golden calf that they made, probably looks something like that. So let's take a look quickly at how God is going to deal with the children of Israel throughout the Old Testament based on the Mosaic law, all the way into the time of Christ, because Israel will be under the law. And let's look up these passages Mark, did you read? Okay, why don't you look up Deuteronomy 29, 24, and
1: 25.
0: Randy, Joshua seven, 11. We'll come back to that later when we talk about the conquest. And you want to do Judges two, twenty. 20, Loretta? And Micah 6, 1 through 4. You got it? Now, before they even enter the land, God already predicts through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, Deuteronomy... Is written at the, towards the end of the wilderness wandering. Moses is preparing the next generation, the generation that grew up in the wilderness, because at the end of the 40 years, the old generation had died out. In other words, the men that were 20 years and older at the beginning have all lived 40 more years and have died in the wilderness. And now that second generation, The book of Deuteronomy is addressed to them to prepare them to enter the land. And in the book of Deuteronomy, not only does Moses review their history, the history of the children of Israel, but he even looks ahead and predicts what's going to become of the nation of Israel. And this particular prediction deals with Israel in terms of the Mosaic law. So you want to read, 29 verses 24 and 25. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? And if you read the context,
1: He is
0: kicking the children of Israel out of the land because of disobedience. And the question is raised, you know, what are the nations going to think of this? Keep reading. Why is this great outburst of anger?
1: Then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of God. The God of their fathers she made with them. She brought the out of the
0: land. So you get the connection there? In other words, they will be expelled from the land in the future. And this is looking probably, first of all, at the Babylonian captivity. And then later on, it may be even looking ahead in terms of 70 A.D. when they were cast out of the land again after after Jesus Christ, after after the New Testament era. And before they even enter the land, Moses, obviously through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is predicting that they'll be cast out. But the point I want you to make is what is the basis of them being cast out? Did you catch that? Yeah, they broke the covenant. They forsook the covenant. So it's looking even ahead before they are even a nation. So God's going to deal with them. And at the conquest, now in Joshua 7.11, we have a little problem. You got it, Randy? Israel has sinned. This is, this is during the conquest, and there's a problem because they didn't obey the Lord in what he specified. Okay, 7.11. Israel has sinned, and
1: they have also transgressed my covenant. Transgressed my covenant. For they have even taken up the accursed thing and have also stolen, and dissembled also. I even. On the of stuff. okay and God is going to deal
0: with those particular individuals in that circumstance. We'll come back and look at that passage. but the thing I want you to notice here, it's on the basis of violation of the covenant. And this is consistent. In other words, historically, this is how God's going to deal with them. The writer you want to read judges 2:20. the whole period of the judges is a period where Israel has abandoned the law. Abandon the Mosaic Covenant. And read just 2.20. Okay.
1: So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed, my covenant, which I've commanded their fathers, has not listened to my voice. I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations. But Joshua left when he died.
0: Okay, and we'll come back to some of these passages as well, but the thing I want you to notice in that passage, it's on the basis of what? Forsaking the covenant. Forsaking the Mosaic covenant. So God is going to deal with the nation of Israel throughout the rest of their history based on their response to the law. That's why it's a conditional covenant. And then much later in the history of Israel, Micah is condemning the nation in Micah 6, 1-4. Do you want to read that? And by the way, if we looked at the details of this passage, it fits a particular form of a legal proceeding. It's called a reeve proceeding, and the word in the Hebrew is reeve, uh, transliterated r i b, but it's pronounced with a like a v sound r r i v reeb. You want to read uh, those six verses there, six one.
1: Ah, uh, hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise,
0: read your case before the, wow. the The word case there, in other words, present your, read. In other words, present your legal defense. Alright, read. And let
1: the hills hear your voice. Listen. In other
0: words, the hills, the mountains are like witnesses. Present your case before the witnesses. Go ahead. And then
1: listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord.
0: Here's an indictment. God is going to pronounce an indictment. This is a legal proceeding here. Go ahead. Are
1: you and, and, you, enduring, and you enduring foundations of That's That's what I guess? Because the Lord has a case against Israel.
0: God has a reeve against Israel.
1: Even with Israel. Keep reading. My people, what have I done to you? How have I married you? Answer me. Indeed... I brought you up from the
0: land of Egypt. Okay, reminding of the Exodus. I
1: ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered you.
0: Okay, he, he just goes on, and if you keep reading even beyond verse 4, he's basically setting forth a case... And the case that he sets forth is based on the Mosaic law and the violation of the law. Okay? So it's like a courtroom scene that is presented in, in Micah. The point I'm making here is God is going to deal with the children of Israel based on the Mosaic law. In the last passage, we have Jeremiah eleven two through 10. Do you want to get that one real quick? Mark. This, uh, well, he's looking it up. The setting of this is Israel, at the end of their Old Testament history, they're going to go into captivity, they're going to go into Babylon, God is bringing judgment, and they're going to go into exile, and all of this is based on violation of the law, violation of the covenant. So Jeremiah eleven two. start reading, we won't read all the verses, but you might jot down 2 through
1: 10 specifically. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say to them, Thus says the Lord the God of Israel, cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant, which I commanded your forefathers of the day that I brought
0: them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, what covenant is he talking about? He tells you specifically right there. Mosaic covenant. When he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Keep reading. From the iron furnace saying, Listen to my voice and do according to all which I command. So you
1: shall be my people and I will be your God. In order to confirm the oath which I swore to your forefathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and
0: honey. Now that oath, what is that oath to the forefathers? Same thing, covenant. Yeah, but which covenant? Abrahamic covenant. So he's talking about two covenants there. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant, but then he refers to the Abrahamic covenant as well. Keep reading
1: as it is this day. Then I said, Amen, O Lord. And the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, Listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart Therefore I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Then the Lord said to me, a conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants
0: of Jerusalem. Okay, that's far enough. But basically, they're going to go into captivity because they have violated the covenant. And notice that it's very clear. And this is at the end of their history. So even before they're a nation, it's predicted... When they violate the covenant during the conquest, they suffer consequences. During the period of the judges, which is a dark period of time, again, violation of the covenant, and God deals with them then. The prophets, later on in their history, God brings a case against them based on the Mosaic covenant. And then as they are cast out of the land in the book of Jeremiah and go into captivity, always based on the covenant. So God deals with the nation of Israel based on the Mosaic covenant final
1: implication
0: is in the New Testament, when we come to Messiah, we learn that in some senses, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So the fulfillment of the Mosaic law finds its fulfillment partially in Jesus Christ. And that's why we're no longer under the law, because he has fulfilled the law. And probably the main way he has fulfilled the law in that he became the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate way of relationship and access to a holy God when he died on the cross. He became the Passover lamb that is specified in the Mosaic law. Make sense? So Jesus becomes the Passover And he fulfills perfectly, he obeyed the law perfectly. He was sinless. So he fulfilled the aspects of performing the stipulations of the law in that he perfectly obeyed. He also fulfilled the ceremonial aspect, being the Passover lamb. And he also fulfilled the moral aspects or the absolutes of the law as well. And thus we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. We're under a different system. We're we're not under that covenant. I was
1: wondering uh in that reading for the prophets all that time a lawyers.
0: Yeah, they were like prosecuting attorneys, lawyers. They were also like defense attorneys. We'll talk more about this when we talk about the kingdom and later. Both prosecuting and defense lawyers. Well, that concludes our portion that deals with the exposition of some of the passages that deal with the law, as well as developing at least these five implications. Well, we've completed looking at the law in terms of the biblical revelation, and we only touched on some of the passages, primarily Exodus 19 and 20, but I also mentioned many other places where the law is expressed. The book of Numbers, all of Leviticus, much of Deuteronomy is a re-giving of the law. So we looked at it and drew implications, and now... Probably the area of apologetics that it applies closest to the law, since the law is kind of revelation of the truth, revelation of God's standards, it kind of reflects what the essence of the Bible is. The the essence of the Bible is a revelation of God, a revelation of God's standards. So in terms of apologetics, probably the area to defend is just the Bible itself. Why do we believe that the Bible is so important? In other words, why do we believe that, in fact, it is the Word of God? And why do we have such a high regard for for the Scriptures? So let's take real quickly, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, you can take a whole course on basically bibliology that does what we're going to do here in a very brief, short time. So what we want to do, number one, and the bottom line, is defend the integrity of God's Word. The culture in which we live in has no regard or very little regard for what we claim to be the Word of God, which we look at as the canon of Scripture, the 66 books of what we describe as the Bible. And we believe that that... Bible or the Word of God has integrity. In other words, it is truth. And there's lines of argument that you can give. The first line of argument is what does the Bible claim for itself? We call that internal evidence. Internal evidence is what the Bible itself claims in regard to its integrity or in regard to its truthfulness. And I'm not going to spend too much time, but basically, if you look at the internal evidence, first of all, the Bible claims that it is a revelation. And what we mean by revelation, I summarize it with this little sentence here. God has revealed to the original authors the unknowable things he wants man to know about himself. That's revelation. And some things to note here. It's revelation in that these are things in the Bible that we would not know, they're unknowable, apart from God revealing them, and that's what the Bible claims to be. The central passage on this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, particularly, we won't look that up, but particularly verses 10 through 13, you might just jot that down. And in that context, it speaks of the Bible as a revelation. In other words, something that man could not come up with himself. And that's the essence of the Bible. It's a revelation. So God has revealed to the original authors, in other words, those that wrote the Bible, and there are at least 40 different ones that wrote, So God revealed to the original authors the unknowable things he wants man to know about himself. And then these original authors wrote down that revelation. And once they penned that revelation, the Bible claims that it's not only a revelation, but that that writing is inspired. So the Bible claims to be inspired And the key passage there is uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired or God breathed. Would be a way to translate that. Inspired of God and profitable. And then it lists for what teaching, uh, rebuke, correction, or...
1: Teaching and rebuke, correction, and training
0: in righteousness. And training in righteousness. Very good. And in that verse, it claims that it is inspired. And what we mean is that God superintending those same human authors, those authors that he revealed these things to, God superintended, and what we mean by that, he controlled the outcome of what they would produce. That's inspiration. God superintending the human authors so that they recorded his message to man in words of the original authors. And what that says is God didn't always dictate. In other words, he allowed Paul to express himself through his own thoughts, but God superintending those thoughts such that the end product of what Paul wrote, whether it be the book of Romans or Ephesians or Colossians or whatever... It was God's message to man in those words of the original authors. That's inspiration. And that would be true of Moses, that would be true of Isaiah, that would be true of all of the authors of Scripture. We believe that all Scripture is inspired. Now, there are some portions of Scripture that God dictated, and the most clear ones are what God dictated to Moses. And he says, write these down, and God spoke. And much of the Mosaic law, God dictated that. So some scripture is dictated, but others are, like the writings of Paul, God used their thought processes, but he's still superintending such that the end product is what God intended. That's what inspiration teaches. Make sense? Some writers used sources other documents can you think of an example in the new testament of an author that used sources and he tells us that
1: this is the old
0: testament. well yeah not he, yeah hebrews but i'm talking about other sources that are not necessarily inspired the writer of hebrews used the old testament but that's inspiration and he's just quoting i'm thinking of an author in the new testament that uses used documents and then he from those documents he gathered information Those documents weren't inspired, but what Luke, Luke is the author, remember? Yeah, Luke said that he investigated all these things beforehand, and it sounded like he interviewed people, and he probably interviewed Mary and maybe others, and he investigated some of the writings that were very early. Those writings weren't inspired but what he drew from them and what ended up in the Gospel of Luke and perhaps the uh, book of Acts, as he wrote it as well, the end product was inspired. Sense. So he used sources. But God superintended his selecting of the materials out of those sources such that the end product that was recorded was God's message. That's inspiration. The Bible also
1: claims
0: to not only be revealed of God, in other words, things that man could not come up with, and God superintended the whole process of writing them down such that we have inspired books, but he also superintended such that what we have written is inerrant, without error. We believe in inerrancy. And these are claims of the Bible. In fact, the Psalm 19 passage that Randy Red is one of the key passages that speaks about the... I don't remember all the descriptions, but basically the Word of God is pure. In other words, there's no impurity there. The Word of God is right. In other words, there's no error there. The Word of God is perfect. No defects. And you go down the list, and it speaks of inerrancy. Defining it, inerrancy, Scripture is infallible and without error or fault in all its parts and words. That's inerrancy. No mistakes in the Bible. Now, there are some theologians that have kind of a limited inerrancy, and they would qualify it by saying that the Bible is inerrant when it deals with doctrine or theology. They leave a little wiggle room and say there may be some errors when it comes to science, There may be some errors when it comes to some historical issues. Now, I believe in a full inerrancy in that no matter what the Bible speaks of, when it speaks, it speaks inerrantly. And I hope I demonstrated that when it deals with scientific issues, it is more up-to-date than any of the science that we have today in any textbooks. So when I say inerrancy, I mean that it's infallible and without error when it deals with scientific issues. And when it deals with historical issues, that's inerrancy. And Jesus, uh, let's look this passage up. You want to, Randy? You want to look up Matthew, Matthew five eighteen. And besides that one, Second Peter one twenty one: For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's revelation, that's inspiration, and that's even inerrancy in that they're speaking what God revealed and what God spoke. But Jesus, in Matthew 5.18, you you have that one? you want to read it loudly?
1: For I say unto you, till heaven ever pass one jot or one tittle, shall in the wise pass of the law, till all
0: Okay, that King James Version, right? Not one jot or tittle, Jesus says of the law shall pass without it being fulfilled. It's not a statement per se of inerrancy, but it implies that Jesus had a high level of confidence to the point that he said one jot, what he's referring to there, the King James is referring to the Hebrew yud, which is a Hebrew letter. And if you go through the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, etc., you'll come to a little letter that almost looks like a comma, except it's like a superscript comma. It's not down low. And it's different from all of the other letters in terms of size. And this little uh, alphabet here kind of reveals it. So this little comma, which is a Yud, it's a letter. It's just as much a letter as Aleph or bait, or any of the others, but it's much smaller. And Jesus is saying, not even a tiny little letter like a yud is going to pass away. And then what does he say? A jot and a what, tittle? That's uh, the Hebrew seraph. And that's not even a letter. What that is, that is a part of a letter. And what I've given you here is I've given you a bait, and the only difference between a bait and a kaf is what? You notice the two different What's the difference here? See, it has this little thing here, and then it goes around like that. This goes around like that. And as Mark is pointing out, the only difference is this little tiny projection there. That's a serif, Or King James translates it, tittle. And Jesus is saying, even the difference between a B letter, bait is like a B, and a cough is like a K, the only difference is this little tiny projection, and he's saying, even that's not going to pass away. Or... Uh, the only difference between a Dalet, here's a Dalet, like a D letter, is this little tiny projection here. The only difference between it and a Resh, it's like an R, is that little projection. The Resh does not have it, the Dalet has it. So see what Jesus is saying? Not even the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet or this little tiny projection in some of the letters are going to pass away before it's all basically fulfilled. That implies inerrancy. So we believe in the Bible being a revelation. We believe that that revelation, when it's written down, was inspired or superintended by God, such that the end product is what he wanted, so that the implication of that is that there is no error. There are no errors. And we also know another internal claim that adds to the integrity of the Bible is just prophecy itself. The fact, because man cannot predict future events, and the Bible has large portions of prophecy in it that tells us events that are going to take place thousands, sometimes thousands of years later. And the prophecies that have been fulfilled, for example, even the Abrahamic covenant, that's predicting that there'll be a whole nation. And there'll be kings in that nation. And it comes about. That speaks of, that speaks of revelation, inspiration, inerrancy. So just the existence of prophetic material speaks of a high integrity of the Word of God. So there's that internal evidence, and just the preservation or the transmitting, the transmission of the Bible speaks of supernatural action. The Bible has always been under attack in every generation. And the fact that the Bible has survived, we could talk a lot about that. The Bible has been transmitted to us thousands of years after its writing. And that's miraculous. That speaks that somebody is protecting this document. And then there's all the external evidence, and there's much of it. And very quickly, let me just summarize some of the external evidence. First of all, number one, archaeology. The more archaeology that's done day in and day out, the trend is to confirm what the Bible teaches If there are problems in the Bible, you would the more that you discover in archaeology, you would have the opposite. You would find, oh, uh, there's an error here because archaeology demonstrates that this event didn't happen or this city doesn't exist or this city is different from what is described in the Bible. But the more that archaeology does its work, the more it confirms customs, events, historical events, things that took place that are recorded in the Bible. Just one example, for example, secularists said that for a long time that there's no evidence of peoples called Hittites, and the Bible speaks a lot of the Hittites, and there was no evidence found of such a people anywhere, but can't remember 50, 60 years ago. the the first beginnings of discovery of a Hittite culture. And today we know that a Hittite culture was very extensive, exactly like the Bible describes, in the exact locations that the Bible speaks of. And this is true overall of archaeology. The more that we learn about archaeology, it confirms what the Bible speaks, confirming inerrancy, the accuracy and integrity of the Bible. Just the survival of the Bible, I already kind of touched on it when we talked about transmission. The impact, you might say this is an external evidence. The lives that have been impacted by the Bible have had a transforming effect that you can't explain on a natural basis. So there's something about the message of the Bible that has a transforming effect on people's. And oftentimes when you have large numbers of peoples that have great impact, it totally changes entire cultures. And that has been seen historically. Just some examples of that are some of the revivals of of historical time. And some of those revivals have saved entire nations, entire cultures. So the impact that the Bible has had testifies to the, the integrity of its its work. And there's other confirmation, scientific confirmation, not just archaeological, historical confirmation. The more we learn about history, the more we see that it confirms what the Bible teaches, the more we learn about science. We're discovering things in science that the Bible spoke of years ago. In fact, the whole field of microbiology The Bible touches on microbiology when it speaks the kinds. It doesn't talk about the genetic aspects, but we're learning from genetics the validity of the idea of there's boundaries in categories of plants and animals. And the Bible refers to them as kinds. So that's just one example of things that confirm the Bible from science. And... Lastly you could say that the Bible is unique from all literature that has ever been composed and that uniqueness speaks to the integrity of the Bible and the the unique one of the unique features is this book was written over thousands of years utilizing over 40 authors and yet it has a consistent and a clear message and what we're doing in this course is trying to expound that movement of that historical narrative. So that's your defense of Scripture. And we cannot emphasize the importance of Scripture enough because of the things that we just mentioned. Well, we've completed our look at law, and our next major event will be the conquest. The conquest. And that will uh, primarily deal with the book of Joshua, and we'll touch on the book of Judges as well. So on our timeline, we've come to one of the last events, or close to the last major event of Old Testament. Uh, we've looked at creation, and after that, fall, and then flood, and then the scattering at Babel. Abraham and the Abrahamic Covenant, the Exodus, and last event, we looked at law, and close to those events, another major event is conquest, very important event. And again, we'll look at the biblical passages first, or some of them, those that relate to conquest and events leading up to it, and then we'll draw implications from them. The underlying perfection of God is one that we've already touched on, but we see very, very clearly, and probably on a more localized basis, the sovereignty of God. God is moving sovereignly, and one of the implications we're going to see again God is sovereignly moving to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And remember, one of the things that he promises in the Abrahamic covenant is what? The land. So now we're going to deal with that aspect where God is going to bring them into the land that he promised. And remember, he promised to Abraham, and he gave some details in Genesis 15 concerning the land. And this is hundreds of years before. And now in time, God has brought the children of Israel to a point where they are a unified people, unified experience, and they've been given a unified constitution that organizes them as a nation, and now God is going to sovereignly move to move them into the land. And this is after the 40-year wilderness experience. So I see the sovereignty of God, and you might refer to your notes to some of the passages that we looked at, but there's literally thousands of them that speak of God's sovereignty. On our little outline here, we're still looking at the emergence of Israel, this major division of the Old Testament, the emergence of Israel. We've looked at the formation of the nation apart from the land part, but the nation being formed, book of Exodus. We didn't spend too much time in the book of Numbers. I'm going to look at some passages kind of leading up to the conquest in the book of Numbers. But we will focus primarily on the next phase, which would be the possession of the land. And you can see how history is unfolding here, step by step. And the possession of the land is primarily the subject of the book of Joshua. And in the outline, you can divide the book of Joshua into two major parts. The first major part is the conquest of the land. That's the first 12 chapters. And you can divide that. The first part of it is the preparation for war. Preparing the children to enter into battle with the Canaanites in order to take the land. And we want to look at it but before we do that, let me just kind of introduce this by stating that when we deal with Moses and jo- and now Joshua, God is passing the torch on from Moses to Joshua, and that happens in Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, and you have a kind of a also a transition in the first chapter of Joshua, where now Joshua is going to be prominent. We had Moses. Now Moses and Joshua, from the biblical perspective, the writings of Moses and whoever wrote the book of Joshua, and it's possible that it could have been Joshua, the Bible views them as prophets. Not in the prophetic sense, but in the sense, in the sense that they are the first Divine interpreters. And we have the divine interpretation of history. We had Moses giving a divine interpretation of all of the book of Genesis, that historical portion. That's God's interpretation of those events of world history. Now a lot of it was very selective, particularly the first 11 chapters. Didn't give us a lot of detail. The focus is on the history of the beginnings of Israel. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the last part, Joseph. But that is a divine commentary, if you will, on those events relating to Abraham and the formation of the nation. So with the writings of Moses and now Joshua, we have the first divine interpretation of history. So in reality, we have the first historians I would include Moses and the author of not just Joshua, but the author of Judges, who would have to be an unknown author. We don't know the author of Judges. Whoever wrote both of those, those would be prophets, but they are also historians. So the first historians are not Herodotus, not the Greeks, The Greeks didn't write history until thousands of years later in terms of Moses. The first historians and basically the origin of the whole concept of historiography or history, the whole concept comes from the Bible. comes from the writings of basically Moses and the the writings of books like Joshua, Judges, etc. These are the first histories. Now if you take world history at UNM or any other secular university or even in high school, they will tell you that the Greeks were the first historians. That's not true. Moses would have to be the first historian. The writer of Joshua would have to be following after Moses. So we're dealing with prophets that interpret history. They're interpreters of history. They're giving God's perspective. So they're not just recording events, they're recording events in terms of what God is trying to communicate through those events. So now, with Joshua, we have the next stage in the fulfillment of God's covenants, that relationship to the covenants. And you remember when I gave you the beginning of our study of the Exodus, what did I say? God is intervening in history to what? fulfill the covenants, the next stage in the covenants, and now we're taking the next stage after that stage. And that includes the conquest, or involves the conquest. Even before we look at some verses, and we'll look at some verses in, in conjunction with these implications, the first implication to draw is God is moving to fulfill his covenants. Both Abrahamic and Mosaic. So he's moving to fulfill covenants. Fulfilling of covenants. It's your first implication. So let me review for you the covenants that we've already looked at and then briefly even look at some that will follow later on. We've looked at the Noahic and that's an unconditional covenant and remember the essence of it. God promises not to bring another flood but in fulfilling that, what God is basically specifying by that, remember it's a covenant between God and Noah and his descendants and the whole earth. So it deals with nature, it deals with the natural realm. The Noahic covenant establishes a stable environment, a stable natural realm It's going to have some consistency to it. Now God will always intervene and, and there will be what we call miracles, but in general, the world will be stable in terms of no flood, predictability, the ability to do science, consistent laws of nature. That's the Noahic covenant. We saw the Abrahamic covenant, which is huge. It's an unconditional covenant as well. It had the three stipulations, the seed it also had the land aspect and it had a blessing aspect. Those are three major stipulations. Also in Exodus we have the Mosaic covenant and then the re giving of the Mosaic covenant in Deuteronomy. It is different, it is conditional. Conditional covenant. Now I put the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant not only under the umbrella here of the Abrahamic, but it also kind of overlaps under the Mosaic. So there's some unconditional aspects of the land, the giving of the land, and there's also some conditional aspects. I've, I've told you about that already. Just briefly review that. So in terms of the land, there's also what's called the Palestinian Covenant. That's Deuteronomy 28 through 30, I believe. It's a subset of the Mosaic but it's also an expansion of the Abrahamic in terms of the land. And now we're going to be dealing with this aspect, primarily the Palestinian covenant, and how it is worked out through Joshua as Joshua and the children of Israel take the land. So it's going to be partly a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, at least the early stages of the land aspect and the early stages of the Mosaic Covenant. So there's going to be some conditional aspects, but there's going to also be some unconditional aspects. And just to fill out our chart here, the seed aspect of the Abrahamic Covenant is a Davidic Covenant, which is mainly unconditional, and there's a blessing covenant later that we'll touch on, blessing aspect in what's called the New Covenant. So those are the covenants. So God is now moving to fulfill this aspect, the land aspect, which is part of the Mosaic, and part of the Mosaic includes this Palestinian covenant, but it also was specified in the Abrahamic covenant. So in what way are these fulfillments? Let's take a look at how they are fulfillments. First of all, in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, we saw that God produced a seed. God produced a people. God even produced a nation, except in this stage, they're a nation that is on the verge of taking the full extent of their nationhood by taking the land. So it became a family and then eventuated into a nation. So this is the stage that we're going to look at in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. In terms of the Palestinian covenant, it specifies in the land, being in the land of Canaan. Is that right? Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And like I said, it's part of the Mosaic, so it has the condition of obedience. The children of Israel have to follow God's instructions in order to be successful in conquering the land. That's key. We're going to see individual instances where they didn't fulfill exactly what God did, and what happens? They fail. In the book of Judges, they fail to do what God said, and it's a dark period of time. So we'll talk about that as well. So we're going to look at all of these in more detail. Randy, do you want to close for us? Thank you, Lord. the
1: Truth of your words. I pray that would bless us and keep us. As we, have seen today we
0: Amen.